is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today from Washington, D.C. is Jungian analyst, author, and historian, Dr. Melanie Starr-Costello. She earned her doctorate in the history and literature of religions from Northwestern University and her diploma in analytical psychology from the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, where she currently serves as a training analyst. A former assistant professor of history at St. Mary's College of Maryland, she has taught and published on the topics of psychology and religion, medieval spirituality, and clinical practice. Her study of archetypal activity in the body, titled Imagination, Illness, and Injury, Jungian Psychology and the Somatic Dimensions of Perception, was published by Routledge in 2006. Dr. Costello served as Director of Education of the Jungian Analysts of Washington Association and has chaired their Professional Standards Committee since 2002. She has been a trustee for both the Consortium for Psychoanalytic Research and the C.G. Jung Foundation of New York, and after 20 years on its faculty, she serves as advisor to the board of the Jung Society of Washington. Her current work, centers on individuation as ecology, the ideological roots of alienation from nature in Western society as shown in our environmental crisis and in relation to aging. Her essay, Conscious Aging as a Spiritual Path, is included in the book Jung and Aging, Possibilities and Potentials for the Second Half of Life, published by Spring Journal in 2014. Dr. Costello's writings on St. Catherine of Siena prompted me to ask her to do an episode about mysticism as it pertains to the life and work of C.G. Jung. That and more are the subjects of our talk today. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, November 13, 2019, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Dr. Costello. Hi, Laura. Let's first start with your background. Um, You have a PhD from Northwestern here in Chicago, and then you went on to train to become a Jungian analyst in Zurich. How did that all happen? Um, Well, it took a long time, I can say that. I, um, I have a lifelong interest in uh, the life of the dream, the life of psyche. It started when I was a, a child, um, when I was fascinated by dreams and would bore people to death uh, asking them about their dreams or telling dreams. And, um, and I also came from a Roman Catholic background and that with the devotion of saints and some of the, um, you know, some of the sort of daily practices and perspectives that I gathered from that Roman Catholic environment. It just left me with a sense of mystery, which, um, which was, was very much my primary focus all throughout my childhood. Um, so there's a long background, but um, coming up more to present time, I had been um, studying um, in graduate study and then teaching undergraduates as a historian um, of religions with a special research focus on women's mystical spirituality in the late Middle Ages. And there again, that was an opportunity for me to, to study and then teach, learn about the way in which psyche was, was experienced uh, historically in the Western Middle Ages, um, particularly on continental Europe. And, um, and so that interest uh, sort of took me eventually to Jungian psychology when I started to realize that my subject area was very much linked to the idea of the archetype. Um, Jung's work on that spoke to me. And of course, in my own personal experience, I found that um, my own dreams were showing some of these recurring motifs. So there was both a personal and and a professional interest in psyche and visionary life and in what people do with uh, the experiences they have of of soul in their life. 
Um, so while teaching, then I started to notice that, um, you know, coming out of my own union analysis, that um, I was talking about psyche. I was looking at the historical record, um, but um, I wanted to work more directly with psyche. So that led me to the Jung Institute after a long process of discernment and listening to dreams and uh, exploring the the shift of careers as a possibility. So it wasn't just an idea you had, you really followed your your inner life and you looked to the unconscious to guide you. Absolutely, absolutely, all along. But you know, it's it's not such an easy thing when you're when you're living it. Right. Um, you know, for example, I had set on an academic career and there I was, you know, doing what it was that I had thought I had wanted to do and trained to do. And, um, and yet here I was being called to a whole different kind of career, which would involve starting over. So there was a lot of suffering having to let go, you know, of a preconceived notion of what this life is going to be, how it's going to be uh, lived professionally. And um, so that was a long discernment process. Mm -hmm. And you just mentioned two words, which we'll get into later, calling and suffering. And those tie into our topic of mysticism. But uh, just continuing on, so you wound up somehow in Zurich, where you did your training. And did you stay there for the entire time? How many years were you there? Yes, I was at the C.G. Jung Institute um, as a training candidate for five years. And I, you know, I, I lived there in those five years. I very rarely came back to the States only for holidays now and then. So um, it, it was a full uh, immersion experience in the, in the study, but also just in the life of Psyche. Swiss, Switzerland lends itself to that with its beautiful environment mm -hmm. and um, and high level of safety. <laughs> so, yes. so you know, so one could one could take walks in the middle of the night and go sit by a stream and and um, can sort of listen to to see what's going to come up from from within. So it was a fabulous experience. When you came back, um, did you start your practice? I did. I started my practice in Washington right away. Um, and now that's been, you know, 20 some years ago. Mm -hmm. So you've written two papers, um, probably more, but two that are published, and they are both available online on Catherine of Siena. Yeah. Um, well, I think I became interested in Catherine because well, she was, you know, she was, uh, she had a strong relationship um, to to Rome, and so in terms of what was happening politically, as well as within the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, in the later Middle Ages, um, she was a she was a pretty fascinating figure, and she was one of the few women who got away with public teaching. Um, the teaching of spirituality, the teaching of theology in a public setting, um, which was forbidden to women uh, in, in terms of ecclesiastical law. Uh, so she, she was interesting to me from a, a feminist point of view, and she was interesting to me from, you know, the more personal point of view in light of my history growing up in a Roman Catholic culture and context. Um, so the thing about Catherine is also that she wasn't uh, a cloistered nun. She was a tertiary, which means that she was a lay person who had um, a kind of official connection with uh, the monastic tradition and with the Dominican order, but she was not a cloistered nun. And so she also represented um, a trend that was um, taking off in the later Middle Ages where there are a lot of people who are living a contemplative life, a life devoted to spiritual practice and aimed at direct um, contact, unmediated contact with the divine, um, but doing that as lay people and collecting together as communities to foster 
that spiritual practice. So there are a lot of interesting things that she represents um, in terms of developments in the Middle Ages. Every time I visit Rome, I spend a lot of time in the Basilica of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. She's buried there. Um, There's also a story about how her head isn't there. I don't know if that's true. And maybe you can tell us about that. But the reason why, if everybody's wondering, why am I bringing her up? She was a mystic. And I want to talk about mysticism because Jung has been, and I'm going to use the word accused, he's been accused of being a mystic. And that that was always kind of strange to me because I thought that, is that a bad thing? Is that wrong? And in reading about it, I can understand why he did not want to be considered a mystic. And I have no problem with that. I personally, I considered myself a bit of a mystic, but uh, I was trained in the sciences and worked in the sciences. I am not one or the other. I've always felt that I was both. I think we need for you to define what is a mystic. All right. So, um, yeah, let's let's take a look at from a, a sort of uh, studied point of view, what um, what we mean when we say someone is a mystic and what we mean by mystical experience. Mm-hmm. You know, all of us, all of us, pretty much all of us have had mystical experiences. I mean, this is the stuff of, of spirituality generally. And that means that, you know, we're all um, coming into uh, times when we feel uh, a sense of the presence of something that transcends one's oneself, one's personal uh, knowing of self that takes one into um, a sense of being uh, accompanied or in the presence of something greater. The mystical dimension of human experience has to do with the felt sense of the presence of the divine. And then the mystic would be someone who really cultivates this communion with ultimate reality, um, whatever one might call ultimate reality in your particular religious tradition or in your uh, now, your spirituality, even if you consider yourself operating outside of religious tradition. Mm -hmm. So the mystic cultivates communion, cultivates a sense of that, Um, that divine presence and looks for deeper and deeper connection to the divine presence. So I would say that to call someone a mystic is to make a statement really about the aim of their spirituality and and the degree to which they have put themselves behind the aim to experience union with ultimate reality. The mystical what is simply refers to a certain kind of human experience um, that is that is uh, of course uh, something that happens sometimes just in ordinary day to day life. So formally, um, was Jung a mystic? I would say formally, in terms of how one looks at mysticism in its traditional aspect, not exactly. But did Jung have mystical experiences? Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. He was trained as a medical doctor. He was a psychiatrist. And he would often say that he was a scientist, right? So those two things could not kind of be together mysticism, science, it was frowned upon. And he would not be taken seriously. Is that true? Well, well, that is true. But I think you have to look at Jung at different phases in his life. Uh, yes. To yeah. really discern his attitude towards this. So, you know, the background um, for Jung's so-called accusation um, as a mystic, for Jung being accused as being a mystic, is the 19th and 20th century 
um, movements within science. I mean, this is a the age of scientific materialism, mm-hmm. um, and this has to do with sort of the culmination of of what was happening in Western European intellectual life since the Enlightenment, where the the role of of faith and religious tradition was sort of placed in a more supernatural camp, while you know the rational and the 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 logical and the study of natural phenomena was put in uh, the scientific camp and and more in the secular direction. It was so it was generally perceived that you don't bring these two together, which is exactly what Jung did, not just as an individual in his own spirituality, but Jung brought these two together. He brought religion under the microscope of science or tried to. Mm-hmm. And and so it's there was a, a misconception that all of his work was really mystical. I think we have in all honesty to sort out, okay, you know, what what did he truly subject to his empirical method and much especially his early work is is within the realm of empiricism. And what, when is he speaking out of more personal experience? But isn't that important to include everything? Um, because Jung did speak a lot about wholeness and to exclude those experiences from um, his writings or his, his talks uh, would not be, would not be Jungian. I mean, that, that informed everything, right? So what were some of the mystical experiences that Jung had? In this regard, what comes to mind is, you know, the, the really the origin of his theory of individuation, which came out of personal experience. His the, the tensions between his, the way that he saw Psyche um, when he's collaborating with Freud the um, the vision that he had just before the Great War, when he saw all of these the the blood and 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 the destruction, that was a vision. That was a mystical vision that he reports um, in in the Liber Novus. Um, and then then his active pursuit of understanding of the tensions within his own psyche which constitute his, you know, his active imagination, um, his trying to get in dialogue with his own unconscious and all of this, this work is compiled into what we now have access to under the name of the Red Book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, so, so just coming back for a second to what you're saying, yes, um, for Jung, there is an interweaving of personal experience, which informed his choice of research subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, we, I mean, on the whole, we can't separate them, but we can say he, he took from personal experience a th- theoretical stand, and then he tested it through imp- empirical experiments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so I think he was trying to, of course, get acceptance from the scientific community by insisting that he was writing and, and researching out of an imperial, uh, empirical method. But he seems, if I, if, I read, if I read him accurately, later in his life, after he had, um, you know, a near-death experience, uh, you know, very close brush with death. Um, and, uh, as a, as an old man and during this near death experience, he himself experienced the mystical marriage. He observed it. He was it. He describes it in his memoirs. You know, this is, this is, uh, this is a, a, a mystical experience, an experience of a deeper transcendent, um, reality. Um, and, and it was then 
the experience that informed the work that came after and which we can read in the collection called yes. the Mysterium Conjunctionis, the study of the mystical marriage. Yes. So, you know, at that point, I think he's unapologetic um, about the object of his, his study and his passion for that study. But earlier on, he, he does, I think, try to separate th- these things out, understandably, when he's sure. a younger man. For those who are not familiar, you can read about Jung's near-death experience in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And you mentioned the mystical marriage, and I'm bringing in mystical death, and those are both things that you wrote about when you were writing about Catherine of Siena. So would you explain what is the mystical marriage? Well, um, the mystical marriage archetypally Let's just to be um, uh, analytic about it first. I mean, archetypally, when we talk about the mystical marriage or the hieroskamos in the Greek, we're talking about the coming together of two complementary um, aspects of the psyche. So you can think about conscious, unconscious, um, spirit, matter, body, soul as complementary principles that gain uh, a union in our perception through, uh, through the imagining or through the, the, what would be described more as direct experience in a mystical sense. Um, so, for example, in the Middle Ages, the mystical marriage um, and Catherine's mystical death leads to the mystical marriage the mystical marriage is the coming together of the soul with God. There's a very long-standing tradition in um, wealth in, in the Western religions of this union of the soul with the divine. So in the case of Catherine of Siena, we come to a later medieval uh, context. The mystical death of Catherine of Siena describes a four-hour period where she was thought to be dead, but when she was actually in a mystical state of union with the divine, where she experienced herself moving into an I-thou relationship with the divine and ultimately her, her sense of identity being completely dissolved into, um, into the, the Godhead. There's a lot that happened in her life before that. I, I, For those who are not familiar with her life, I mean, she died when she was 33. She died very young. Um, and she, what, I, I don't want to use the word starved, but she was, um, what's the word I'm looking for, where she deprived herself of so many things. So this is somebody in a, a physical, mental, emotional state that's not like, you know, us walking around every day that, that led to this. <laughs> right. right. And because right. I, I, I often wonder when I read about the lives of the saints, you know, and the mystics, why isn't this happening today? Is it happening well, today? And we're it, dismissing yes, it. Yes, it is happening today. Um, but um, most people don't have exposure um, to others who are having, you know, such a a, a, a degree of um, of experience and of access to, you know, these kind of deeper psychic realities, um, we would we would find it within religious traditions today. We would find it um, in uh, in Christian contemplative circles people who are practicing forms of prayer that cultivate um, a sort of releasing into a, a communion with the divine. We, of course, we would find it in, um, in various uh, disciplines within Islam, within Sufism. That's about cultivation of the mystical experience through the, through the body, through through devotion, 
Um, we, you know, of course, there are the traditions in the East, which, you know, this is, this is very much a part, the, 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 the practice, the discipline to try to access um, ultimate reality, mm-hmm. however that may be formulated, is, of course, very much a part of the Eastern religious way. So, you know, it depends on how precise one wants to be when you define mysticism where you might look to find it. Um, but certainly within religious practices, within you know, people who are explicitly cultivating a discipline within their religious tradition. And this is something that you had mentioned the word calling earlier when you were talking about deciding to kind of change careers uh, and become a Jungian analyst. And so with St. Catherine and others who have undergone uh, similar experiences, they were called. And that is part of this, I don't know if I want to call it a process that they've undergone, would you say? Um, And the suffering. Uh, I was wondering if you would speak about that. uh, Because (laughs) to tie this all together, uh, another reason why that caught my eye is because I had a very lengthy analysis. I was in Jungian analysis for 17 years. And my analyst would be, well, she would get very encouraged when I said, you know, I'm, I'm really suffering. And she say, well, that's good. That's a good thing. And I didn't understand that. It took me years to understand <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about suffering. Um, and in your paper, one of your papers, you look at the sanctification through suffering in the life of yeah. Catherine of Siena. Right. So I, maybe it would help if we sort of look at it within the context of mystical theology and then look how it and look at comparisons in terms of just you know, those people who are just consciously trying to have their individuation, do their individuation process, right? Because there are parallels. And these parallels are, are, are seen and, and explored by Jung. um, When he talks about the process of individuation. So, so, okay, so let's say if we step into Catherine's time, in the, in, we're talking about the Western psyche here. We're talking about Western European Christian formulations. Mystical theology, all mystics worked within the, the containment of, uh, of a particular theology. And, um, and in, the, in Western Christian Europe, mystical theology, basically one of the, one of the ongoing themes um, uh, speaks to a sort of archetypal pattern. In, in mystical theology, it would call, uh, we called the process a kind of threefold way. There'd be different names for it, but basically the first stage would be purgation, um, and that is confrontation with um, the unsavory sides of one's character in a mystical context there was a, a you know a, a real suspicion of the life of the body, so mm-hmm. often trying to overcome the pull of the, the flesh. We might compare that in in contemporary times outside of the religious tradition with shadow work um, and the individuation process, which you know the first one of the first things we encounter when we start trying to track our own unconscious processes is how are we how are we relating um, to the unsavory sides of our own character, the parts of ourselves that we would reject and rather find in somebody else than in ourselves? Mm-hmm. You know, our own seven d- deadly sins, so to speak, our own jealousy, our own whatever lust, our own our own capacity for evil in the in the most dramatic formulation. So. Mystical theology, coming back now to the Middle Ages, purgation um, has to do with the way in which one um, uh, takes a confessional attitude and starts to to look at oneself uh, with a, a moral eye and with conscience, and um, and this has a tendency then to reduce the sense of the self 
and to, br- to, to bring one to a state of humility. Um, now, Catherine of Siena was, uh, did this in excess. Um, I think even if we were a 14th century person, we might say that. Mm-hmm. She was inc- an incredible spiritual genius, but her life path was one of suffering, both passive suffering, just sort of, you know, what a hard time to live, um, 14th century. I mean, we're talking about dramatic um, weather changes, uh, changes in weather pattern, dramatic um, uh, experiences of disease. Um, there was a lot going on in Western Europe to make one very suspicious of earthly life. Uh, and so, so the process of purgation and the focus on the suffering was central to Catherine's spirituality. And she was called, she, her, her, her writings show that she felt called to do this work. And to basically um, sort of reduce her her love for herself, we would say in today's language, to you know annihilate the ego self, to annihilate the identity um, and the sense of and one's one's own narcissism, one's own need to um, to be to be seen, to be loved, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So. So this is the, the the work where the ego is leveled, and in Catherine's case, really uh, kind of annihilated. And um, so, yes, she fasted, um, she slept on boards, she participated in 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 uh, some of those excesses um, we associate with the flagellants in the Middle Ages. You know, right. you see them in Monty Python, the people who are whipping themselves mm-hmm. and and singing. So this was, you know, but this was culturally accepted um, in the Middle Ages, though in her case, a bit ex- excessive and, and so excessive that she, yes, I mean, medically, she she probably uh, starved herself to death. She was living on a Eucharist uh, and very little water uh, for much of the uh, the latter part of her 20s and into into her 30s. Um, so purgation. Then, um, then the, the, in mystical theology, the next day would, stage would be called illumination, and this has just has to do with the fruits of leveling the ego position, where um, somehow once one gets out of one's own way, then the access to um, through prayer, through contemplation, the access to the divine starts to open up. And I mean, I think in, in, in an individuation process, um, you know, you can consider, you know, the insights that come when we start to, to, to get an active relationship to the unconscious, when we follow our dreams, when we, you know, when we, we suffer the humiliations of the ego rather than fight them. And when we start to really listen deeply and take, uh, take the language of the soul um, seriously, um, then illumination, we start to get insights, we start to experience heightened states of awareness sometimes. Yeah, is that the purpose of the suffering? It is. It is. In in the medieval context, in the mystical context, yes. It's to, it's to peel away anything that's not ultimate reality. Yeah, to peel, peel away desire. And what about in the individuation process? What is the purpose of suffering? Well, I mean, I think just from the psychological perspective, mm-hmm. just, you know, understanding that that's, that's a significant part of what life is. That um, our idea of life and our self-ideals and ideals connected with what life should be are constantly frustrated. Um, sometimes we encounter deep traumas, deep crises, and how do we how do we walk side by side with those mm-hmm. things? We can, if we want to do it, sort of out of um, out of a willful stance, then we hang. Uh, then we just we fight it. 
we complain, we, um, we act as though that is not what life is supposed to be. But if we are able to understand that we're up against the limits of our will, and that that's very much a piece of life, and it's a piece of maturity, then there's a possibility of meaning making. And the deepest meanings often, often come out of our suffering. And this really flies in the face of our culture, which if you're suffering, you need to do whatever you can uh, find a way to stop the suffering instead of going into it. Absolutely. And, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is profited by that attitude greatly. And particularly, you know, the human developmental process goes on to the end of life. And we have callings, each individual has callings to um, renovate one's attitude and to reassess what's happening in life again and again. So if we don't, if we don't get um, a working conversation with loss and suffering going, and if we keep just kind of plodding on willfully, what often happens is, you know, depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So if, if that's happening and if it's not recognized, and if one medicates it, then the question is, you know, are we postponing a developmental stage in life? And I say that's a question because I, I do need to underscore the fact that not all depression or anxiety is coming out of some sort of denial of, of a natural process of, of individuation. A lot of depression and anxiety seems to have some organic basis. So one has to really discern what, what it means. I do believe that there's something underneath it still, and that it can be dealt with um, in, in, in this way uh, through Jungian psychology and not through medicating ourselves out of it. Well, I think, I think even even if there is some condition that one, you know, has inherited or was born with, if that's the case, there's, there's an important role um, that therapy can play. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's not, um, it's not an either or, Um, you know, we each are born into the world with a temperament. And understanding that temperament is therapeutic. Understanding that, um, you know, for example, I, I come from generations of women who suffered acute anxiety. Mm-hmm. That helps me to know what um, kind of adjustments I need to make in my life. Mm-hmm. And it helps me to know where I need to push myself. And it helps me to deal with the fact that no matter how much I might will myself, for example, to be an extrovert, I'm not an extrovert, right. I'm an introvert, you know? So, so really coming, one has to take one's own story and look at these things within context of one's own story. And that's where the magic happens. You know, that place of tension between what is and what one wants and what the possibilities are mm-hmm. uh, beyond that. That's analytic work. Yes. I still see and hear people say, well, like you said, this runs in my family, or this is the way I am, and they struggle with it and stay in the struggle and not work with the struggle and look at it symbolically and and transform it in some way. It doesn't get transformed when I see people talk about, well, it's genetic. There's nothing I can do about it. And they sort of identify with that and, and stay there. It's- yeah. Well, you know, you see the, what meaning we make of our experiences. You know, the, it is a choice. That's where the will does come in. Right. Am I, gonna, am I going to make meaning 
of my suffering or am I just going to say, you know, there's nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. Just to wrap up on Catherine of Siena, um, late medieval mysticism, um, how it kind of ties into individuation experiences today. What I wanted to mention is the crown of thorns. This came up um, because of the BTS army. Um, It is rumored to be part of BTS's next comeback. And I was looking into the crown of thorns because immediately um, army was wondering uh, what, what does it symbolize? What does it mean? How could it tie into their, their next um, record? And Interestingly, I saw uh, a painting of Catherine of Siena with the crown of thorns on her head. And w- was she imitating Christ? I mean, what what is what does that symbolize? This cr- wearing this crown of thorns and yeah. you know the suffering and and why do you think she was depicted that way? Um, she's depicted that way because uh, the ultimate um, experience for her, the experience of union with the divine, came through imitation of Christ, and that's you know that was the path of suffering. Um, and this is this is something we we see um, in in medieval mysticism, where one takes on an attitude that is one is not only. Um, working with one's own suffering, but one is engaging in imitation of Christ, devoted to the suffering Christ, and entering into a state of identity with with Christ as, you know, the, the divine manifest in human form, um, or the divine united with the human, and and experiencing that excruciating humiliation and uh, torture. So Catherine experienced herself in her mystical death as Christ on the cross, as part of, of a union through love of Christ, through the arrow's function, we would say, psychologically, mm-hmm. a union with the, um, the, the sacrificing Christ. So the crown of thorns refers to that union, that imitation of Christ in union through the crucifixion of Christ, that led to to the ultimate um, experience of union with the divine. The suffering in the crucifixion led to the experience of union with the divine. The the identification with Christ on the cross, um, and the 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 great compassion and sympathy, the outpouring of love toward. Christ in his suffering leads in this in this case leads mm-hmm. to the experience of the mystical marriage the union so the purpose of the suffering on the cross the crucifixion all of that is union with the divine um are you talking are we moving now to the Christ story to the Jesus story well i guess i'm i'm still trying to understand why if if the ultimate goal right is union with the divine is that is that what the purpose that is the ultimate goal yes yeah, the so, mystic that's the ultimate goal. Uh, of the mystic union with the divine mm-hmm. so the purpose of the fasting and the um abstaining from things is to get to that point why the the physical suffering? Why the torture? Yeah. Well, um, well. On one hand, because um, that in in order for the human and the, the divine come to get to come together in Christian theology, um, Christ Jesus has this experience of torture on the cross that that is a moment in which there is um, a marriage of the human with the divine. So in, in this medieval Christian mm-hmm. context, mm-hmm. Um, that becomes one bridge, to use Catherine's language, to union with God, to experience 
the image to go through the image through sympathy and have that experience, which becomes uh, an experience that takes over the whole consciousness. And then one spills into uh, an ecstatic state of union. So that's the theological basis. And the purpose is to, to, to kind of destroy the body, you know, um, harm the body and get rid of the body? Well, um, it's, it, 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 it's spoken of in more subtle theological ways. There was such um, a suspicion of the body mm-hmm. in, um, in the Christian Middle Ages. Um, and, you know, while theologically um, it, was, it, it was held as doctrine that, um, you know, God is present in all creation, um, Christianity had evolved out of the influence of Greek philosophical uh, formulations about a hierarchy of being called the chain of being. And so one of the fundamental assumptions in the Western psyche, and this is linked to our current attitudes toward aging and our current attitudes Mm -hmm. toward the environment, the Western psyche, you know, is, is, has come up out of a foundation that links kind of the biblical story. I'm talking about the basically dominant Christian cultural psyche um, that comes up out of, of a, a melding of a biblical story, biblical mythology with Greek philosophy. And in the Greek philosophical system, we see this articulated um, by Plato. Um, the spiritual is superior to the material. Mm-hmm. So the life of the body uh, gets connected with the idea of the more material, the changing aspect of reality, whereas the the life of the mind, the life of the spirit is higher up the chain of being. And so in the Middle Ages, the basic um, anthropology that we see um, in the medieval mind is at the very top of reality is sort of the ultimate unseeable, unknowable spiritual realm um, under which is the realm of the angels, under which is, is man, under which is woman. You see woman's getting closer to the materiality. Right under which the animals and then the plants and then the earth itself. Mm. So there's a real attitude of ambivalence toward life in the body and toward the world and toward the, the natural world. And while we're not conscious of it collectively today, the problems that we're experiencing um, in, in, with the environmental crisis, what we have done to our home comes out of this dissociation from um, from uh, from the land that that we are in our consciousness not really connected up with the the presence of the created world the presence of the natural world as truly alive and as truly the ground from which we spring yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about your presentation on individuation as ecology, but I don't want to neglect to mention your book. We were talking about the body. You wrote a book called Imagination, Illness and Injury, Jungian Psychology and the Somatic Dimensions of Perception. And I will put a link to that on the website. People can read more about uh, what Dr. Costello had to say about the body. If you want to just briefly tell us what the main topics are in that book? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's just, the book is exploring um, in, in, uh, through the lens of analytical psychology, the question of how are the soul, mind, and body in conversation with one another? And so it's, it's, it's basically a compilation of clinical um, observations, observations from my own clinical practice that are showing 
a process whereby illness or injury, um, even psychosomatic illness, um, is linked, how it's linked to the symbolic process, how the bot, what role the body plays in, um, in the formulation of, of um, ideas, of visual images, of, of ordered movement. That is the image world. How, what role do our bodies play in creating a state of conscious knowing? It's really looking at um, the process as I observe it in, in the clinical world and how um, the basic observation I made uh, for the study is that injury and illness um, often precede the coming of big insights. And so what's going on there? And so this has become um, really part of the early stages of the way in which I work as an analyst, where we stay in conversation with the body. Yes. What's going on with the body and tracking that alongside the images Mm -hmm. that rise up out of the process. So working with the symbolic meaning of the illness or the injury and looking into why has this come? What's, what else is going on here? Yes, that the, the why might be part of it, but it's really also just uh, creating an environment so that what the body, what's happening in the body can come up into consciousness. And it can come in the form of an insight or a visual image mm. or a soul experience, but it's sort of like a deeper degree of awareness of something. You had mentioned you were talking about the environment and ecology, and last year you gave a presentation called Natural Cycles, Natural Symbols, Individuation as Ecology. And something I thought was very interesting is that you said that you wanted to look at how our environmental crisis and our collective fear of death stem from the same ideological root. What did you mean by that? That um, if we come back to what I was describing a few moments ago, when we come back to you know the, the Greek and the biblical foundations mm-hmm. of the Christian, the dominant Christian culture, and, and the cultural assumptions that, that we make, um, we can see that our attitudes toward the body and, you know, our, our attitudes toward the environment um, in their problematic aspects mm-hmm. reflect this dissociation um, from uh, dissociation from natural processes the the you know the sort of hierarchy of being that is part of our basic set of assumptions um, keeps us in a state of of focusing on what is unchanging, sort of seeing things as if change is not part of the natural order. Oh, okay, so, for right. example, you know economics expectations of of continual progress. You know that we're things are things are wrong if if there's a shift in the gross national product. You know this sort of attitude that that assumes that we should always things should always be growing, 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 but moving in an upward trajectory, or that the natural state of the human being is you know the state of a thirty year old. Mm-hmm where where we 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 value that which belongs to to youth yeah. um, above above the and, and ignore the natural processes which lead to um, which lead to are part of aging which which are part of the whole life journey, which is both a journey where you know the body starts to uh, to decline, while hopefully we move toward wisdom. So it's just you know we're 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 just trying to look at the foundations so that we can address the deeper foundations of our um, dissociation from from the life uh, of the body and its natural processes 
and, um, and, and earth life, planetary life. You say that there's a link between maturation of consciousness and our acceptance of natural cycles. Right. So in our psychological work, if we really want to, to move out of this state of alienation from change and, um, and, and from aging as a process um, and our resistance of suffering, we, we then can take up the work of, of looking at a life, looking at our lives through the lens of the natural process and tracking patterns of death and renewal, for example. What have I, what have I had to let go of? What do I need to let go of? What has happened in my life that has changed my ideals, changed my values, changed my point of orientation? And to look at that as an, you know, to, to track that as an ongoing process so that one dies in a sense consciously in order that something new can be born. Mm. I mean, it's just a cyclical view, but it's, it's amazing what happens if one really looks at important turning points in life, important losses, important insights, and sees that there is inevitably a link between coming into a, a little winter and, and a, later on the birth of something new or a state of renewal of vitality, new sense of self, it takes any number of forms. Mm-hmm. So that's the work, the work of seeing it, the individuation process, the development of the personality as a natural process, as, as nature within us, as nature's way of doing doing its work within us. You participated in a panel in Washington, D.C. on Jung and aging. Um, This was back in 2012. And the video is actually available in its entirety on the Library of Congress's website. Uh, Fellow Jungian analysts Joseph Cambray and Lionel Corbett were there as well. What did you contribute to that? Um, well, I I was involved a little bit in the in the planning and conception um, of that event, um, but it was it was done um, with a collaboration between the Library of Congress and the Jung Society of Washington. Um, so I basically uh, uh, presented some some thoughts on on uh, Jung and aging, how Jung how Jungian psychology, what it might have to say about the aging process. What would make the Library of Congress want to be involved in something like this? Um, they Did they contact the Jung Association and want to do something on Jung and aging? I think you had mentioned that this had something to do with their exhibition of Jung's Red Book. Um, well, it, it was um, an event that, that Followed uh, a few years prior, um, the Library of Congress had collaborated with the Jung Society of Washington uh, to do a beautiful exhibit on the on Jung's Red Book. So there was a working relationship between these two uh, okay. entities, and the and the um, the colloquium on Jung and aging, which was really. Um, really coming out of the efforts of Leslie Sawan, who was an active member of the Jung Society at the time, um, to, to, to put on a conference with the Library of Congress on a subject that Jungian psychology has lots of good things to say about, um, and, and that would be of interest to the general public. And of course, with all of us baby boomers, Aging, um, aging is a hot topic, continues to be a hot topic. So it was a great time to do that work, especially uh, since Jung, uh, Jung's work was very much in the public eye 
um, after the publication of the Red Book. Right. And like I said, that entire panel, um, the video is available on the Library of Congress's website. I will put a link to that in the show notes. And you mentioned the Jung Association, or sorry, the it's the Jung Society of Washington. Uh, I refer to it as the Jung Society of Washington, D.C., not to be confused with Washington State. So Right. I used to live in Washington State. I lived in Seattle, and so I'm I'm familiar with um, the confusion sometimes that goes on between the two. So you are uh, part of that society, and uh, I don't think anybody uh, that's been on the podcast has actually spoken about it. Although James Hollis, who's done three episodes of this podcast, he is now the director of the Young Society of Washington. So what can you tell us about it? Yeah, um, well, Jim, Jim was the executive director of the Jung Society up until this, this past July. The Jung Society finally agreed to let him um, go off and write another book or oh, you know, doing know what Jim Howes does. Okay, great. Right. Um, right, but he did a fabulous job in his five-year tenure as the executive director and really just uh, developing programs for the society bringing in I mean the society is a long history here in Washington and it's been yeah. it's been um, an institution so to speak um, with with always a consistent group of people um, following um, the analysts who come to speak and and, and engaging in wonderful courses uh, and seminars and so forth. Wow, was so he there you know, for for five years? I th- I feel like he, he was just, for five years. Like he just got there, so that's gone by really yeah. fast. He was in Houston right. for many many years. He was many the years director of yeah. the Young Center in Houston, which is probably the biggest Young Center in the country. Um, and then I remember when he went to Washington, I was I was a little surprised, but uh, Washington, ha- D.C. has the long history. You do uh, presentations there still, right? Sure. I Yes. Presentations, lectures, um, courses, uh, seminars, uh, along with um, other analysts uh, from the area and from elsewhere who the society brings in to do uh, lectures. They probably have about six uh, public lecture workshop weekends or more a year. Um, so they've been doing this work for a long time, but Jim brought a, a, you know, a real um, vitality to, to the organization. And, um, and so it's grown its membership and um, is, is doing some really good things in terms of public education. So so that you know, it is about uh, the programs are are focused on Jungian psychology, and other some of the other uh, disciplines, sometimes related disciplines. People who who are from you know local universities or people who are um, psychologists or therapists with an interest in Jungian psychology might come in and and teach on any number of related topics. For example, we just had a program. Um, with uh, an anthropologist from Georgetown University on um, uh, Siberian shamanism. Um, really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, the Jung Society is doing, uh, doing a lot of good work in the community. Mm-hmm. And uh, to preserve Dr. Hollis's teachings, they do offer online video courses. There are five of them, and I will provide links to those in the show notes. So uh, we've come to the end of our time today, Dr. Costello. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to discuss? Well, there's always so much more to say, I know, right? I know. Um, <laughs> but um, I guess, you know, I, I, on, on the whole, I would say, you know, one way to look at Jung in his relationship to um, the topic of religion generally is that I think what he, he was about in his work was showing that, that this is not something separate from other kinds of human experience, that religion is an instinctual uh, process, the, 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 the symbol-making process, mm-hmm. the, the functions that are behind the making of religious traditions. These are processes that are fundamentally 
human, belong to the human, deserve to be studied and understood. And, um, you know, when we're in a time that where uh, the affiliation with religious tradition is falling off to a great degree, and this, of course, was starting to happen in his time, there are other ways to cultivate the life of the soul um, that involve, yes, involve having a relationship with the deeper, deeper psyche and mm-hmm. its symbol-making process. Um, and I think he was trying to address the need for that because I think he, he, he understood that there was a fundamental need for a relationship to things that transcend, you know, the, the limits of, of what we can, uh, what we can do in, in our knowing and our experiencing within the confines of daily life and in confines, uh, within the confines of dominant cultural products. Um, so, you know, in that regard, it's, it's psychology with an aim, it's psychotherapy, yeah, with, with an aim uh, of, of helping the individual to, to come to a state of greater wholeness through getting in touch with some of these inner resources. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed here today. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can help support this podcast at no extra cost to you simply by shopping at Amazon.com through any of the book links on the website or by registering for any of the online video courses offered by the Young Society of Washington, D.C., which includes Dream Interpretation with James Hollis and Keeping Your Own Red Book with Susan Tybergian. You can start these courses at any time, go at your own pace, and you will have lifetime access to the material. This is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. Mm-hmm.